1 Timothy. We're going to be in chapter 6, verses 6 through 8. And the title of our message this morning is Choosing Contentment. Choosing Contentment. Contentment is going to be the subject of our study today, and we will talk about it very extensively. I would argue with you that contentment is probably one of the most neglected spiritual disciplines. It almost feels like contentment is especially like the long-lost spiritual discipline of the 21st century. But what are we talking about when we talk about contentment? You can note it down. Contentment is a perfect condition of life where nothing is needed to be added. It means sufficiency of life's necessities. Or you could put it, a mind that is satisfied with its lot. I like that last definition especially. A mind that is satisfied with its lot. Or my own personal way of thinking of contentment, Tate's definition you could say, is being good with what you got. That's the simple man's version of it. Good with what you got. Contentment, though, is something that is completely unnatural to us. We are not naturally a content people. Because of the sinful nature that is within us, which the Bible describes as the flesh, we have an insatiable desire for more, more, and more. And because contentment is so unnatural, it is something that you and I must choose. We must make a resolve within our hearts to choose contentment. Hence the title of our message, Choosing Contentment. It is a spiritual discipline that we must exercise ourselves toward. Here's a story that depicts contentment well. There once was an old fisherman who came in from a day of fishing and relaxed by his beat-up boat on the shore. A young and wealthy businessman, dressed nicely, happened to be walking along the beach and came to him and asked, Sir, how come you are not out fishing? And the seasoned fisherman told him, Because I've caught enough fish for today. The businessman was confused and replied, Well, why don't you go and try and catch more? There's still some time left in the day. The fisherman acknowledged what he said and replied, Well, that may be true, but what would I do with the more fish that I catch that I already have? The ambitious businessman said, well, if you catch more fish, you can make more money, and you can use that money to buy a better boat, and you could go out into deeper water and catch even more fish that would be bigger and even more profitable for you. And if you did this for a month, you could make so much money that you can invest into a fleet of boats and pay other fishermen to fish for you. And eventually you can make so much money that you could be rich like me. The fisherman pondered what the businessman suggested to him and replied, well, and then what would I do? (laughs) The now frustrated businessman responded to him, well, you could sit back and enjoy life. And the fisherman chuckled to himself, And said, young man, what do you think I'm doing right now? (laughs) As he kicked up his feet and looked peacefully out at the sun setting over the sea. The reason why contentment is so neglected is because it's one of those things that is so much easier talked about 
than actually implemented into our lives. You and I, we live in the midst of a hyper-driven consumer society that teaches us not to be content. Our society does not want us to be content. We are constantly bombarded by advertisements that are trying to get us to buy this or to buy that. And these advertisers, they have one goal in mind. Their goal is to convince you that you need what they're offering, when in reality, you probably don't need it at all. You see, the world that we dwell in is anti-contentment, but the God that we follow is pro-contentment. And before we read our text this morning, I want to challenge you with a thought that I firmly believe in and I try to live by. The spiritual discipline of contentment is the key that can unlock a depth in your relationship with the Lord that you might not yet know. If you choose to be content, I would argue with you that there's another depth of the Lord that you can experience. So you should be open in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 6. Why don't you go ahead and stand for the reading of God's word. We just have three verses today and I'll read all three. You follow along with me. Look down in your Bibles or look to the screens. Now godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. Let's pray. God, we pray that you would bless this time as we dive into your word, Lord, and that we would walk out of this place a changed people. Lord, we know that your word is powerful. We pray that it would bring piercing to our hearts today and that we would apply these things. Lord, we are so guilty sometimes of letting your word, showing up Bible study after Bible study and letting it go in one ear and out the other. Lord, we don't want to do that today. Would you help us? Holy Spirit, would you guide our time right now? In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. If you're taking notes today, our first of three points is, number one, choosing contentment because it is great gain. And we get this from our first verse in our section of scripture, which simply says, now godliness with contentment is great gain. Godliness and contentment, they go hand in hand. We define contentment at the start of the message as a mind that is satisfied with its lot. Or like we also said, my personal definition, being good with what you got. Godliness has to do with Christ-like character. It should be thought of as God-likeness. Hence the word godliness, God-likeness. To be godly is to seek to know the attributes of God and to make sure that you are acting in accordance to them. And when godliness and contentment are paired together... It's like peanut butter and jelly. It's a good combo. We're told that it is great gain. And when we're talking about great, great gain, excuse me, not Great Danes, that's a dog. Great gain. What are we talking about? Great gain, you can note it down. It is that which is highly profitable or that which is beneficial or advantageous. 
that which produces a great return. You see, choosing to be content, it's not simply a good thing. It's one of the best things that you can choose. Let me put the concept of great gain to you like this. Contentment is something that you should choose to invest into. Think about what an investor does. Maybe some of you are investors. An investor is someone who devotes their their money, their time, their resources into something that they think is going to bring them a good profit, a good return. I don't know if you guys have ever watched the, the television show Shark Tank. I don't watch it too much, but I've seen some episodes. But it's an interesting show, and basically how the show goes is... A person will come to the the sharks is what they're referred to, the the investors, the people who have a ton of money and a ton of resources to make businesses succeed. So someone maybe with a small business will come to them and they're looking to take their business or their product to the next level. And so they'll give them the sales pitch and the sharks will hear them out. But when the sharks, when the investors hear about something that they know there's a great opportunity in this. This could be really good for me. I should invest in this. They will aggressively pursue a deal. Now, sometimes the sharks, the deals they offer is like, I'll give you a bag of Cheez-Its and a couple bucks to 50% of your company. <laughs> but nonetheless, these sharks, they want to make a deal when they see a good opportunity. Maybe you're someone who knows a good amount about the stock market. I don't know too much about it, but I know this much, that if you were to take the knowledge that you have today back with you when huge companies like Apple, Amazon, Tesla, or whatever big companies come to your mind, if you took the knowledge you have today about those companies, take it back to when those companies first went public, what would you do? You would invest. You would devote a ton of money into those companies, why would you do that though? Because you know that in the grand scheme of things, over time, it would be something that produces an immense return for you. And in the same way, God is saying to you today that if you choose to be content, this will be something that will be worth it for you. It will be profitable for you. It will be great gain. The great gain we're talking about is not in the sense of, well, if I, if I choose contentment, well, then God, if, if I choose to be content with my possessions, then God's going to give me more possessions. Now, God might do that. It's happened before, but that's not what the great gain we're talking about is. The great gain that comes from godliness with contentment is actually for your soul. Think about that one lyric in the classic hymn, It Is Well. There's that short part that says, Whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. One's lot is what God has appointed to them. And oh, how we should always have this heart and mind. Now, let's change gears for a moment. Everyone, what is the opposite of contentment? Discontentment. Discontentment. I heard a couple of you say it. Discontentment is the opposite of contentment. And if you want to look at what discontentment looks like on display, 
All you have to do is go watch some reruns of the old show, Deal or No Deal. I don't know if you guys are familiar with the, the show, but I used to watch it with my family. And uh, basically the premise of the show, there's a contestant, they start out, they choose a briefcase, and in that briefcase is a certain amount of money. They don't know which one, but there's all these denominations of money in the show, ranging from a penny all the way up to a million dollars. And how it works is they choose that, that uh, briefcase, and then in round one, they select out of all the other briefcases that they didn't pick, they will now pick to reveal what those ones had in them. And the game progresses, and each time a round is over, the banker will call down to Howie Mandel and will offer a deal to the contestant. And if the contestant is doing really good, let's say in that first round they chose five cases that had relatively small amounts of money compared to the million, the banker will offer them a really good deal. But I've seen it before, and if you've watched the show, maybe you've seen it as well, where that contestant will just keep going and going and turning down hundreds of thousands of dollars that the banker is offering them for them to end the show right then. And they deny the deal down to two cases, a dollar and a million. And they go all the way. And what do they got? They got a dollar in their case. Discontentment. The deal was there. A really good deal was there and they chose to be discontent. Discontentment is the mind that thinks what I have is not enough. Or it's the mind that says I need more. Or I need, I need that over there. This way of thinking, it will exhaust you, it will make you a miserable person, and it will destroy you from the inside out over time. And we are all too guilty of practicing discontentment in many spheres of life, not just possessions. We're discontent in our relationships. We're discontent in our occupations, in our living situations, in just overall seasons of life. We think things like, well, why doesn't my spouse love me the way I saw in that romance movie? Well, I can tell you why, because that's not real. Why am I working 60 hours a week when, when they're working barely 20 and I'm barely getting by and they're thriving? Why, why do I live in this crusty old apartment and everyone I know has super nice houses that they own? Why have I been going through this trying season of my life for so long? And it just seems like everybody else's life is just great and dandy. We're tempted to be discontent when we compare ourselves. I was just talking with a friend the other day about how I was going to be teaching on contentment today out of 1 Timothy 6. And he told me of a quote that he'd heard before that I really like. He said, comparison is the thief of joy. When you compare yourself to other people, your joy will be robbed from you. The great gain of contentment will be robbed from you. When we're looking at other people's lives and we start comparing us to them, we will be robbed of the great gain that contentment brings to our souls. And as we mentioned at the beginning of the study, we are not naturally content. 
we are actually, our default is discontentment and covetousness. Discontentment and covetousness are virtually the same thing. I would argue with you that covetousness is kind of like discontentment's final form. Covetousness, when we're talking about covetousness, we're, we're talking about the greedy desire to have more. Avarice, desiring what's not meant for you to have. We're so guilty of this. Exodus 20, 17, in the Ten Commandments, one of the main commandments that God gives to Israel is to not covet. He says, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's. We can accurately think of covetousness as a desire for blank over a desire for what God has for you. And you and I, we're the ones that fill in the blank. A desire for this car over a desire what God has for you. A desire for this job over a desire for what God has for you. If what God has for us is over here and that which we're coveting is over there, we know the right choice is over here, but what do we find ourselves doing sometimes? Coveting after that which is not for us to have. There are certain things that God intentionally withholds from us. I've heard it said before that sometimes God's rejections are his protections. I think we'll learn a little bit more about that in eternity when we're standing before God and asking him, Lord, why didn't, why didn't that happen in my life? Well, this is what would have happened. See, God knows what's on the other side. Colossians 3, 5 regarding covetousness says this, therefore put to death, that is some strong language used there, put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. We, we go through that little list right there, and we're like, oh yeah, fornication, I know I got to put that to death, uncleanness, I know I got to put that to that. To death, passion, I know, evil desire, I know, but then we get to covetousness and we're like, well, I kind of, that one gets a lot of us guilty, doesn't it? We are all too guilty of coveting. But how is it that covetousness is a form of idolatry? Because think about it to covet is to make a God out of that thing, it is to make a God out of something that you want. And when you and I covet, the bottom line is, is we sin against God. God's the one who said covetousness is a sin. And what we learn, oftentimes we learn the hard way, is that which we're coveting after, it doesn't satisfy. Proverbs 27.20 says this, hell and destruction are never full. So the eyes of man are never satisfied. Think about that verse for a second. It's not like hell and destruction are like, hey, guys, we're, all, we're, all, we're maxed out here. Uh, I know there's people who are rejecting Christ and entering into eternity, but we got no more room. No, no, no. Hell and destruction are never full. And in the same way that they're never full, the eyes of man, that which we crave, 
We never get satisfied by those things. Think about the parable of the prodigal son. You can read about it in Luke 15. The son, he was discontented with what he had in his father's house. And so, if you know the story, you know the son, he asks for his portion of the inheritance. He comes to the father, says, give me my portion of the inheritance. And the father does, gives him his portion. And what does the son do? He goes out only to waste it on prodigal living, on worldly affairs. And it's not until he gets in the pigsty and he's eating pig food that he realizes that what he had in his father's house was better. And that the things of this world simply do not satisfy Some of us need to hear that today, that the things of this world will not satisfy your soul. More on that later. But giving into covetousness and going after the material things of this world is kind of like running on a treadmill. Oh, you're running, but you're not getting anywhere. I don't know if you can tell, but I'm not much of a runner. It's not my (laughs) cup of tea. But you're just running, and you're running, but you're still in the same spot. You're just exhausting yourself. We didn't read them at the beginning of our study, but in verses 9 through 10, the two verses after the section of scripture we read talk about the desire for riches and the love of money. And both of these are manifestations of greed and covetousness. The heaping up of riches in this life is something that you'll find frequently condemned throughout the scriptures, especially by Jesus. Jesus says in Luke 12, 15 through 21, in response to two young guys who are arguing, he says, take heed and beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. Then he spoke a parable to them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no room to store my crops? So he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build greater, and there I will store all my crops and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be for which you have provided? So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Strong words there. Jesus, he warns us to be on guard against covetousness. What really matters in this life is not our possessions. It's being rich toward God. You might be rich, but are you rich toward God? But what if you are rich? Take heart. Paul writes to Timothy later on in chapter 6, 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19. Here's what the rich should do. Command those who are rich, he's speaking to Timothy, in this present age, meaning in this life, Not to be haughty. To be haughty is to see yourself as here and everybody else is here. Don't be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God 
who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Let them do good that they be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come that they may lay hold on eternal life. You see, letting your life be in service of others is how one becomes rich toward God. King Solomon, he was the richest man to have ever lived. And what was the conclusion that he came to regarding the material things of this life? You ought to read Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes 2, 4 through 11 says this. Solomon the preacher, he writes, I made my works great. I built myself houses and planted myself vineyards. I made myself gardens and orchards and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made myself water pools from which to water the growing trees of the grove. I acquired male and female servants and had servants born in my house. Yes, I had greater possessions of herds and flocks than all who were in Jerusalem before me. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the special treasures of kings and of the provinces. I acquired male and female singers, the delights of the sons of men, and musical instruments of all kinds. So I became great and excelled more than all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure, for my heart rejoiced in all my labor, and this was my reward for, from all my labor. Then I looked on all the works that my hands had done, and on the labor in which I had toiled, and indeed, all was vanity and grasping for the wind. There was no profit under the sun. That was the conclusion that Solomon came to after pursuing everything he ever wanted in, in terms of the material things of this life. That all was vanity, like grasping for the wind. Actor and comedian Jim Carrey once said this, I think everyone should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so that they can see that it's not the answer. The bottom line as to why we must deny discontentment and covetousness is because God did not create us to be satisfied with the things of this world. He has a higher calling for us. Reflect back with me to that opening illustration between the, the, young, the young businessman and the old fisherman. The young man, he was ambitious, he was antsy and, and even frustrated while that old fisherman, he simply just had a sense of peace on him because of his choice to be content with what he had. Amen. When you choose contentment over covetousness, your soul will experience immense benefits. The Bible says so. It will be great gain. And the benefits that you will experience are the rest and peace of God. And oh man, how, do, how we need his rest and his peace. If you're lacking rest and peace in your life, why don't you try contentment? Why don't you try being content with what God has given you? Amen. 
Choosing contentment is great gain. Our second argument today regarding contentment is number two, choosing contentment because you can't take it with you. You can't take it with you. And we get this from verse seven of our text, which says, for we brought nothing into this world and it is certain we can carry nothing out. It's been said before that you won't see a U-Haul being towed behind a hearse. I don't know if you've ever heard that before, but I like it. (laughs) This idiom, it represents the truth that none of the material achievements that you and I have accomplished in this life will go with us when we die. And yet we're so guilty of just being so concerned with the here and now, the stuff All of Elon Musk's billions of dollars, they're not going to go with them into eternity. Tom Brady's seven Super Bowl rings, congrats on that, but it's not going with you, Tom Brady. The Rock's 392 million Instagram followers, not going to mean diddly squat when he stands before God. Souls are eternal. Things of this world are not. And we're so guilty of sometimes centering our lives on the things that are not eternal. You may have heard of the infamous poem by the British missionary C.T. Studd. He says, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. That's a good word. I love the backstory behind C.T. Studd's life. A lot of people don't know about who C.T. Studd was. He was a stud, actually. He was a, he was a great cricket player. The game cricket, I mean, it's not really an American sport, but it's, it's a sport in other areas of the world. He was so good. He was like the Michael Jordan of cricket. And he was born into a family of affluence and, and riches and material success, and he left all of it. To pursue the call of God to take the gospel to the world. He knew that the things of this world were temporary. But that which is done for Jesus, that's something that will go with you into eternity. In the form of what the Bible describes as eternal rewards. Some have said that the only things that you can bring with you into heaven are other people. (laughs) And the way that we do that. Is by taking the gospel to this lost world. What you won't be able to take with you into eternity is material possessions. The Egyptian pharaohs of old, they did not seem to get this. They were often buried with gold, silver, fine clothing, food even, games and weapons in hopes that these things would go with them into the afterlife and that they'd be stocked up for what they needed. Well, spoiler alert, those things are still in those tombs, and yet the souls of those pharaohs are not. After virtually everything he had was stripped away from him, Job, he said this, Job 1.21, Naked I came from my mother's womb, And naked shall I return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's contentment. 
That is contentment right there. Job had so much. Read chapter one of Job. Job was so rich, he had a huge family, and yet all of these things were taken by Satan, and Job still was able to say, blessed be the name of the Lord. Again, Ecclesiastes chapter 5 verse 15 says this, sounds a lot like Job 121. As he came from his mother's womb, naked shall he return to go as he came, and he shall take nothing from his labor, which he may carry away in his hand. Are you a workaholic? Do you work so much and neglect the things that really matter, like time with the Lord and your relationship with him, or time with your family and their needs? This verse is for you. That you shall take nothing away from your labor. Psalm 49, 17, the psalmist says this. For when he dies, he shall carry nothing away. His glory shall not descend after him. Far too many people, even Christians, are more focused on the temporary things of this world rather than the things of God. And what we need to do is we need to shift our focus to the things that really matter. Colossians 3, 1 through 2 says this, If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. Yeah, amen. And so... We should choose to practice contentment because the material things of this world matter matter very little and they will not go with us into eternity. And we must maintain this biblical perspective because if we don't have this perspective regarding the material things of this world, we leave the door wide open for the temptations of discontentment and covetousness. Our final argument this morning regarding choosing contentment is number three, choosing contentment with just the bare necessities. And no, I'm not about to start singing Jungle Book on you. <laughs> Although I did, I was close to quoting it. Well, I guess we'll, you could go look that up later, the song Bare Necessities. Baloo the Bear, the philosopher. But verse eight of our text today says, In having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. You know, it's actually pretty hard for us who live in an affluent first world country to wrap our minds around the concept of what is said here. To be content with just food and clothing, that's enough? That's enough. Theologian and Bible commentator Albert Barnes, he said this regarding contentment. Contentment is a constant feast. He is riches who requires the least. It's a good word. He is richest who requires the least. You, you, you only know the truth of that if you know what it means to be content. And in 1 Timothy 6, 8, Paul tells us of a very important principle regarding the choice to be content. And that principle is that the choice to be content is not dependent upon circumstances. The choice to be content is not dependent upon circumstances. Philippians 4 verses 11 through 
13. Uh, This is from the Amplified Version of the Bible, which is a helpful Bible study tool. Uh, Very helpful if you ever get to a verse that you're just not quite sure uh, what's going on there. Bible scholars, uh, conservative, biblical, textual critics, uh, those brackets right there are just the the clarity that is added to the verse for much of this. But I love how it's put in the amplified version of the Bible. You're probably familiar with these verses, especially verse 13. It says, Not that I speak from any personal need, for I have learned to be content and self-sufficient through Christ, satisfied to the point where I am not disturbed or uneasy, regardless of my circumstances. I know how to get along and live humbly. In difficult times. And I also know how to enjoy abundance and live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing life, whether well fed or going hungry, whether having an abundance or being in need. I can do all things which He has called me to do through Him who strengthens and empowers me. Notice the power and the depth of what Paul writes here in Philippians 4. That contentment can be chosen regardless of circumstances. And I love how Paul there in Philippians 4 describes contentment as a secret. It's kind of neat. Have you learned this secret for yourself? The secret of contentment? Remember what we said at the beginning? The spiritual discipline of contentment is like a key that can unlock another depth in your relationship with the Lord. Paul had learned how to live humbly. The New King James puts it to be abased. This has to do with the seasons of life where he had just enough. This is kind of like that that paycheck to paycheck way of living. I don't know about you guys, but I know a little something about that. These abased seasons of life aren't necessarily what we pray for. Nobody prays, Lord, I pray that you would just help me to live paycheck to paycheck. You're probably not praying that. (laughs) It's not what we pray for, but it's where we can learn that we should still implement the choice to be content, the spiritual discipline of contentment. But how can someone possibly choose contentment Even in the lows of life, well, that's where Philippians 4.13 comes into play. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Philippians 4.13 is one of the most widely favorited Bible verses out of the entire scriptures. But it's unfortunately one of the most misunderstood. This verse is not about you going out and throwing for four touchdowns and 300 yards although I hope you do, this verse in its proper context is about choosing contentment when you don't have much, with just the bare necessities. In any season God has you in, you can choose contentment because Christ strengthens you. Hebrews 13.5 says this, let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Notice, notice the word for there. Meaning there is a bridge between contentment 
and the presence of God in your life. You can be content because even in the lows God has promised, I will be with you. I will not leave you nor forsake you. And because that is true, you can be content. There's a song I kind of like where the singer, he reflects on times of his family's life where they didn't have a whole lot. And he sings that we had it all, but we didn't have much. How can you have it all when you don't have much? By seeing life through the proper lens of contentment. Author and Bible commentator Kent Hughes, he writes this. Real contentment and material prosperity actually have nothing to do with one another. Is there breath in your lungs? Do you have a roof over your head? Everybody does right now. Everybody has breath in their lungs. If not, raise your hand. We'll get you some help. (laughs) Did you eat breakfast today or do you have a meal coming to you later? If your answer to any one of these questions is yes, you can choose to be content. I can choose to be content. I'll never forget the first time somebody challenged me with the thought... That someone is praying for the things you take for granted. That's pretty convicting. Someone's praying for that which we take for granted. The one who is content takes nothing for granted. What we must know is that our God is pretty good at taking care of his kids. He's the best. He does it perfectly. We don't need to doubt his provision. He is Jehovah Jireh, the provider. When we put him first, he promises that he will take care of all of our needs. Matthew 6.33 says this, But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. You know, the context of this verse is not about God granting you your every wish and desire like some sort of genie. It's about him taking care of your needs. And God will do that when you put him first. And because this is so, we don't need to worry. If he feeds the sparrows, he's got you too. I love sparrows. They just remind me of how good my God is. There's a ton of sparrows on this church campus. And throughout the week, when it's just quiet here, they'll just sing and they'll eat. And they're just so much peace upon them. And they remind me that my God's got me. Psalm 34, verses 9 through 10 says this. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. There is no want to those who fear him. The young lions lack and suffer hunger, but those who seek the Lord shall not lack any good thing. Psalm 37, 25, I love this, says, I have been young and now I'm old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken, nor his descendants begging for bread. (laughs) And as we slowly start to close, we would be remiss to talk all about contentment 
without talking what it means talking about what it means to be content in Christ to be content in Christ Contentment in life is only possible when you are content in Christ. But what exactly does it mean to be content in Christ? To be content in Christ is to truly have found it all in him. It is when you have come to him and not only received eternal life, but have had the desire of your hungry and thirsty soul satisfied in him. It is when you no longer have to look to the things of this world for satisfaction or for for fulfillment because you have found that in Jesus. He is all you need. You know, both believers and unbelievers have this in common, a soul that is hungry and thirsty for fulfillment. The difference is the believer knows where or rather who to go to, to have their soul satisfied. Whereas the unbeliever looks to the things of this world, the things that the world offers them in an attempt to satisfy their souls. Peter got it right when Jesus, after many disciples turn away, Jesus turns to Peter and the handful of disciples that are left and he says, will you also leave? And what does Peter say? He says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. You are the Christ. Peter found it all in Jesus. Have you found it all in Jesus? We see this very truth described in Jesus' interaction with the woman at the well in John chapter 4. Jesus comes to the well tells the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, to give him a drink. And there's a conversation between the two of them. And Jesus, in verse 13, it says that he says to her, whoever drinks of this water, referring to the water that is in that very well, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water, springing up into everlasting life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water, that I may not thirst, nor come here to draw. And again, we see contentment in Christ described in John chapter 6, verse 35. The day after Jesus had fed the 5,000, Jesus says to those who were there, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger and never thirst. Well, never hunger. And he who believes in me shall never thirst. To never hunger and to never thirst. When you come to Jesus, that is true. And perhaps the best passage to describe what it means to be content in Christ is Psalm 23. Psalm 23, short little psalm, but oh man. So much there. We could preach a whole message on just one of these verses. But what does it say? The psalmist, he writes, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. 
He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Because Christ is our good shepherd, we do not lack. We are utterly contented in the good shepherd's care and have no cravings for anything else. Because he is our good shepherd, we are well taken care of. If we're not content with the green pastures our good shepherd has provided for us, what we'll do is we'll look to the vain and empty things of this world for that sense of fulfillment and we're just not going to find it. Because he is our good shepherd, when our souls experience distress and brokenness, he restores us. Because he is our good shepherd, we can walk the paths of righteousness as we are led by him. Because he is our good shepherd, though we may be walking through the gravest of times, we do not need to fear because he is right there with us. Because he is our good shepherd, his protection and his correction bring our souls comfort. Because he is our good shepherd, we are bountifully provided for in perfect security. Because he is our good shepherd, he refreshes our weary souls. Because he is our good shepherd, he fills us with joy overflowing. And because he is our good shepherd, his goodness and mercy will forever be upon us. And finally, because he is our good shepherd, we will live with him in eternity forevermore. Hallelujah, praise the Lord. But I want to challenge you, is he your good shepherd? You need to choose Christ. He wants to be your good shepherd. He's inviting you to make that decision, but you must respond to him and say, yes, Lord, I am a sinner in need of you. I can't save myself. I've broken your commandments. I have broken your law. And I am guilty before a holy and righteous God. And I have a soul that is hungry and thirsty for fulfillment. And I want it to be fulfilled in you, Lord. If you need to make that decision, all you have to do is just pray a, a version of those things and God will accept that prayer and you will become a child of God. It's the best decision you can ever make. In the amazing little book, A Shepherd Looks at Psalm 23, the author, W. Philip Keller, who was literally once a shepherd of a flock of sheep, he tells the story of a problem sheep that he once had. He tells of how hard he, the shepherd, worked to provide lush green fields for the sheep to feed on. But this one problem sheep that he had would break out of the fencing of these lush green fields and go over to the dirt where there was just dead grass and that sheep would eat that, that dead grass that provided no fulfillment, 
no nourishment to it. He states, she was a sheep who in spite of all that I had done to give her the very best care still wanted something else. How many of us are guilty of this? Having all we need in Jesus and yet going to the foul things of this world to bring us fulfillment. The grass is not greener on the other side. The grass is greenest where our shepherd provides it for us. If you've been running to the things of this world looking for some sort of satisfaction, God is calling you to drop the act and be satisfied in him. He is waiting to give you his rest, to give you his peace if you will choose to be content in Christ. And a final word from that book I mentioned, a shepherd looks at Psalm 23 as we close. Keller, he writes this, contentment should be the hallmark of the man who has put his affairs in the hands of God. Always men are searching for safety from beyond themselves. They are restless, unsettled, covetous, greedy for more, wanting this and that, yet never really satisfied in spirit. By contrast, the simple Christian, the humble person, the shepherd sheep can, pr- can stand up proudly and boast, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I am completely satisfied with his management of my life. Let's pray together. Oh, dear God, we, we recognize, Lord, that Our hearts are so prone to wander. Lord, I pray for your people today, the sheep of your pasture. God, that we would be not like that problem sheep who would break out and go feed on the unfulfilling things of this world. But that we would be those who, Lord, enjoy all that you have provided for us. Because what you have provided for us is enough. Lord, teach us to be a content people. Lord, our our sinful flesh doesn't want that. But God, we ask that we would obey you in being content. And Lord, that we would experience the great gain that contentment brings. And Lord Jesus, I pray if anyone in here does not know you as the good shepherd, as their savior, Lord, that they would call out to you now and say, Lord, would you, would you be my God? Would you forgive me of my sin that I have committed against you and you alone? I have offended you, O God of heaven. But I am thankful that you sent your one and only begotten son to die upon that tree where I should have been where my sin earned me a spot on. And yet, Jesus, you went to the cross on our behalf, on behalf of anyone who simply calls out to you, who repents and believes in the Lord Jesus. Repent and believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. God, we love you so much. Be glorified in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.